0: To Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, co-founder and director of Berlin-based independent gallery, Jarvis Dooney. Today, I'm speaking with Australian expat Georgina Pope. Georgie works as a curator for Independent Collectors, a digital platform for art collectors and the largest non-commercial archive of private collections worldwide. She's also an art mediator at The Bunker Berlin, a heritage-listed World War II air raid shelter and home to Karen and Christian Borrow's private collection of contemporary art. She also still somehow manages to find time for her own curatorial projects, which focus on audience engagement and activating artworks. We learn about her journey from an Australian country town to Sydney and ultimately Berlin, overcoming personal struggles and setbacks, as well as the unique opportunities and chance encounters which enabled her to realise a career in the art world. Before we continue with today's episode, a quick reminder to please subscribe to Subtext and Discourse on Spotify, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, or even just share this episode with your like-minded friends who would also enjoy listening. With that being said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Georgina Pope. So you're initially from Sydney?
1: I'm from Goulburn, in between Sydney and Canberra. A relatively bigger country town for Australia, but our property is 30 minutes out of town. So it's living in the bush. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing around us. We have no neighbours in sight. We have a free range chicken farm. I really grew up uh, in the outback. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. Uh, oh, wow. I'd, yeah. I had no idea, actually. I mean, I guess I wouldn't, but still. It's funny, t- speaking with different people, I think, from Australia and the stereotype of, oh, you must live out and not know where any of your neighbours are. I, like, <laughs> I thought, oh, it was kind of like that for me. And uh, then with other people I speak to as well, that like, oh, actually, before I went to the city, I was on a farm. Yeah. I guess you went to school in the city?
1: So I went to a primary school in Goulburn, then I went to high school in, in Sydney. I went to boarding school. It's a tradition in Australia or it's it's more common, far more common than here in, in Germany, that if you're from the country and the opportunity is there, then you go to boarding school. I mean, as I said, we had to, mum had to drive us everywhere and I have three siblings. It's not like you can just do something quickly, We all went to boarding school in Sydney and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Are you the oldest? Yes. Oh, same. I'm also one of four.
1: Oh, yeah? That's also something uh, I think strange about, I mean, it's common just to be one or two children here in Germany, but to have four kids in a family, that's like, whoa.
0: I guess you got on the path to becoming a curator. You are a curator. You're involved heavily within the contemporary arts. Mm -hmm. Was that that started at a younger age or you were already involved somehow from school
1: um, at school art was my favorite subject hands down yeah I really loved the ability to do work on a, a final production as your project to finish school and then I studied I actually wanted to study fine arts but I guess I mean my 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 dad he was born in Goulburn and returned to to Goulburn at a pretty young age and had our farm at a young age. Mm-hmm. I was kind of the, yeah, I am the black sheep in the family that wanted to pursue something creative. Actually, my great-great-uncle collected art and he is the reason that the art gallery in Newcastle exists. He donated his collection to the, the city on the basis that they open up a gallery. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, Roland Pope is his name. And we had a really nice family visit when I was back a few years ago, and they pulled out some special works to show us. Yeah, that was my great-great-uncle. And then no one pursued art until (laughs) I came along. I think my dad was a bit like, why would you study art? Is an artist a, a job? I guess that influenced me a bit, and I thought, okay... I should study, I still want to study something with art. So I did a design computing degree and I combined that with all fine arts elective subjects. So in university, I was able to shape my degree to be very creative, but it was very, it was, it was using computers to design, which was fascinating, but way too technical than what I would have liked. It was just a really great sequence of events that followed that. After university, my my first job that wasn't working at a pub. I was employed at Grant Peary Gallery in Sydney as the digital or digitizer. They they wanted to digitize their physical archive. So they employed me to do that. So ah. that was great to have a design technology background. But then in that role I started to do everything in the gallery. Yeah. And that's how I Entered the art world, I guess.
0: Yeah. So that was it. Was from that experience that you went to explore key raising and seeing what other options that there were.
1: Actually, I was more interested, or I thought I would be doing the art making myself, and I guess that was always in in the back of my mind. You mean like your own art, or yeah, as a producer? Yeah, yeah, my, my own art. I was obsessed with Cindy Sherman, the 1950s housewife and i we had a drought in australia one one of many droughts one that lasted for about 10 years it was just completely desolate on the farm yeah i had this idea that i wanted to dress up my mom as the 1950s housewife and to photograph her in a series it was so much fun and as i said yeah heavily inspired by Cindy Sherman and the feminist figure it was a great day actually that day with mom and I'd been naturally sort of collecting objects and paraphernalia all from the 1950s era. And this series with, with my mum. she started out as the perfect, beautifully groomed, very happy housewife and descended into madness the final shot, I think there was 13 images in the, in the series, the final image, I superimposed her. She was lying down on the grass as if she'd collapsed. And I superimposed her onto Roy Lichtenstein's explosion. So <laughs> I really loved that. And actually, um, with one of the images I applied or I submitted it, sorry, submitted it to art and about It's, uh, I guess, Sydney's largest public art festival. Mm -hmm. I submitted it to the Australian Life Photography Competition in 2014 and I actually ended up winning that competition. And with that money, (laughs) I could return to Berlin and... Oh, so you've already been to Berlin. Yes. Okay. So... So, Let's let's go back a few steps. Yeah. With the jumping, Grand Prix Gallery, after I'd saved up money from... Yeah, the pub and that gallery job, I moved to Berlin. I had never been to Europe before. As I said, I was, I'm the black sheep. I was kind of always someone very happy to do my own thing or kind of this random child who daydreamed and was a bookworm and fine to do my own thing. I was actually bullied a lot at school. Oh. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's all part of it. I also went to college at university and my nickname was Myth because I had a life outside of the college context. And yeah, I just was always happy to kind of follow my own path. What was your life outside the college context? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was simply just not spending my whole time doing everything as a college student. It was, for example, the pub that I worked at a lot of people didn't even know it existed because it was the typical Wednesday night drinking was the other direction to the college. Mm-hmm. So I was really into going to art exhibitions, keeping in contact with... With my school friends that weren't in college, there was a big presence of boarding school people at the college, which didn't resonate with me so much. And I just loved doing anything with art. So I would always pursue that. And I don't know, loved going to secondhand shops to get my clothes. So I always had this feeling that I wanted to go to Europe and just explore for one year. I always had the feeling that I, yeah, needed to to get out and and see what else is out there. I had never been to Europe before. I don't know why I chose Berlin. Because
0: it was on the radar in Australia. Were people talking about the cool place to go? A
1: a bit, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there was one, some of my friends, not people that I went to school with, but yeah, the people that when I go back to Australia now that I like to see, but they were kind of these like indie kids. And they would put on these amazing parties with themes and do like teaser videos. Mm-hmm. One of the the parties, the theme was Berkheim. Okay. <laughs> and I remember just, I mean, they they um, gave us like a mood board or, or something with like visual imagery. And of course, I'd never heard of this place, Berkheim, which is uh, inescapable once you come to Berlin. So that was kind of funny. I didn't want to go to London because a lot of australians go there and i didn't want to go somewhere english speaking i wanted to learn another language a few people had said to me oh if you love art you will love berlin it's affordable and so i thought okay yeah i'll, I'll go to berlin
0: and when was around this like 2010
1: that was in uh, at the end of 2011 Okay. Yeah, I did some traveling before with a friend and spent a huge chunk of my savings. So then I arrived in <laughs> Berlin. <laughs> yeah, the initial years were having fun, a lot of fun and kind of having my gap year. I went straight into my university studies after school, worked really hard. I was 21 by the time I had my bachelor degree, which when you compare that to people here, yeah, it, it's unheard of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then saving up and coming to Berlin, that was when I kind of had my, my breathing room and was exploring as much as I could.
0: Yeah. And then so you were back briefly or that was yeah. you went like, on a trip here, then you went back to Sydney and then well, you saved up
1: and came over. kind of. I had settled into life here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, a couple of years, I guess. I reached a point in 2013 where I hadn't been back to Australia the whole time and was kind of ready. I think Berlin really is a place that can make or break you. At that point, it was breaking me, to be honest. So I went back to Australia, still leaving all of my my things here. I went back to Australia, very determined to work off my debt to my dad, find a way to to come back with savings, come back sort of rejuvenated after a year in Australia with my family and friends. Mm -hmm. And it was fantastic, but I needed to come back with savings. I was determined to learn German and to find a job that was in line with my passion for art. The previous years in Berlin, I had been, been I was working in a, um, a gallery in Friedrichshain. It, it was dedicated to street art, which was fine at the time, but but not my thing. And I didn't find it challenging. Um, I was also working as an artist assistant for Giri Georg He was one of the founding members of the Junge Wilde movement. So mm-hmm. that was really, really cool to work in his huge studio at Gleisdreieck. I had worked in commercial galleries when I was back in Sydney for that year. I was asked by my friends who were putting on the the Birkheim parties. (laughs) They had started to produce things, shaping their own creative agency. They were also working with a foundation, the Young Centenary Foundation, to raise money for cancer research. And they asked me if I would curate a production with them, an exhibition, a one-night-only pop-up event and auction to raise money for the charity. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I got on board with that project. And What was it called? It was called CoLab. We invited 21 artists. We formed it into a learning excursion or exercise also for the artists. We took them to the Newtown Research Institute where they do imaging for cancer on cancer cells. Mm-hmm. And so we took the group of artists into the lab and we had a tour through the laboratory and the scientists showed us real-time imaging of what they do with the microscopic slides. That was to form the inspiration for the artists to then produce a new work. We auctioned off the works at our one night Pop-up event where we also had a raffle and we had a load of sponsors. We also organized a voucher system with Uber. We received a lot of press. The auction went fantastically, and we split the proceeds between the artists and the the cancer foundation.
0: Wow, sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun and a lot of work, of course especially when you do the the install and deinstall all in one, one day, one yeah. night. But it was really fun and I loved that engagement of really activating what artists can do using their own practice as a way to deepen their practice or present them with a new challenge mm-hmm. that they may not have otherwise thought of themselves or, or done.
0: Yeah. Was that your first experience doing something like that or even witnessing it as well, where rather than just bringing existing works into a space that you bring artists in to essentially collaborate or create new works for a specific purpose?
1: Yes, definitely. That was the first time being involved as an independent curator. At the time, I was also working with Chasm Gallery in Chippendale in Sydney with Jess Holborn, who now lives in New York. I'd been working in commercial galleries but never producing and curating something myself.
0: Mm -hmm. So you didn't decide to stay in Sydney then, like when you were doing that? Because that's, I don't know, that sounds really, really quite special. But after that, you came back to Berlin.
1: I really don't know what it is. I'm convinced that I, I lived in this city in a past life. Also, my grandmother's father was German, last name Zweck so I have some kind of German blood. But going back to Australia in 2013, I really felt like I had unfinished business in this city and that I needed to come back and find out what that was. Submitting two of my photographs from the series with my mum that I told you about, the series was called Wouldn't It Be Nice If Women Just Worked? Yeah, this Australian life photography competition came up in 2014. And I thought, hmm, I think the series is really fitting. I'm going to select two images and submit them. And at that stage, I paid off my debt to my dad, but I had no, (laughs) no savings to be able to come back. Honestly speaking, I submitted two images and I knew one of them would would win. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was telling everybody around me, I'm I'm gonna win this. Yeah. The prize money was ten thousand dollars. Okay. Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> I knew this is the only way that I can go back and in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was convinced, and I was hustling at the time. I'd signed up with a with a temping agency, and just because that pays super well in Australia. So I was also doing all of these random temping jobs on the side to save money. At one of them, I I got an email that I'd been selected as a finalist, one of 22. And Ken Doan, iconic Australian artist, was part of the the judging panel. Yeah, once I had received that email, then I was even more convinced (laughs) that i would win so then shortly after that i got a phone call that i had won and i was the happiest woman that day oh wow so i was coming back to berlin then
0: (laughs) and before you were saying when you left berlin it had kind of beaten you down a bit and you needed to go back to australia just to rejuvenate and Mm -hmm. it sounds like the project with colab and then obviously winning this photography competition yeah that would have been a huge boost of positivity and energy to continue on your journey.
1: Absolutely.
0: When you came back to Berlin, how had your perception changed or how different were you feeling? Because this would have been a year or two years later.
1: It was a bit over one year. Coming back, I was determined to learn German. So I, I spent months doing intensive German lessons. I wasn't in Berlin to explore and to have this gap year period of life and, and and just enjoying life. I was in Berlin on a mission. And as I said, I had this unfulfilled sensation of a life here. So I learned German. I'm still learning it. I'm very much still learning it, but I can absolutely do everything in my life that I need to. I think after maybe six months doing some random projects, a friend of mine was babysitting Anton Boris, who is the son of Karen and Christian Boris. Oh, okay. I said to her, hey, would you mind passing on my CV to Karen and Christian Boris? And she said, yeah, sure. Karen asked if I would come and meet her in the penthouse. So I kind of skipped the step of of doing it through the director <laughs> and met Karen straight away. And the rest is history, I guess. <laughs>
0: wow. So how, when was that then?
1: So that was in
0: 2015. It's really nice because I think most people that have somehow ended up in Berlin, there's a massive component of serendipity and being in the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. and then that's made everything fall into place. So meeting two of the most known art collectors in Berlin and perhaps in Germany even, (laughs) yeah, that would have been something else.
1: Yeah, yeah. The thing is I adored my time working in commercial galleries. And it was great to have that exposure and experience. But I felt like I did not want to go deeper into that on a career level and that I wanted to work at an institution or a museum. I mean, I always was tentative um, because I don't have a master's degree. And that kind of intimidated me being here because in Europe, everybody has a master's, mm. but. I am convinced now that it's absolutely not necessary. And if you're passionate and proactive, you can do anything that you set your mind to. I, I love the Boris collection. Of course, I will always remember my first tour there.
0: What collection were they showing? when the you? second. Th- the second one. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I guess it was great, great timing. It was, yeah, my timing. <laughs> oh, cool.
0: That's really nice. Yeah. How would you describe your role there?
1: Um, I started off with the art mediation. I was about to say Kunstvermittlung, <laughs> because wow, that's become so automatic. So art mediation. I started as a as a guide there. I mean, of course, it's totally nerve wracking at the start doing public speaking. I'm so thankful now that it's a skill that I've learned, and I love doing it. Mm-hmm. I love the interaction with the public. The Boris Collection has definitely hugely influenced my enjoyment with art and also what I discovered that I actually wanted to do with art. And it was really being there, as I said, I I kind of did think, oh, maybe I I want to be an artist, but I really wasn't sure how to implement that. And being at the Boris Collection and doing the art mediation where you literally are Uh, acting as the ambassador for the artist directly to the audience, directly to the viewer, I realized there's just so many fantastic artists out there, particularly in Berlin. I love working with the ideas of the artists. And so I realized I I don't need to have the pressure of being an artist myself and coming (laughs) up with ideas. I can work with artists, and activate their art making, because essentially you are also doing that with art mediating. I love the ability to work for so long with one exhibition in such a huge space as the bunker. It does take time to really notice little details and to make these realizations of how art works and certain artists work together. You can't just get that in one viewing or in a few viewings. Mm-hmm. And so I started to notice really diverse approaches to art that that really activated this passion to want to curate. And so after some years of the art mediating At the Boris Collection, I also became a supervisor and helping to manage the team and the sort of the on-site manager. Uh, So I worked, um, I guess, one and a half years with the second presentation. And then we have the changeover and we close the bunker for three months, then have a new presentation with completely new artworks. After I'd worked with the, then the third presentation for one and a half years, maybe I was ready for something new again. I'm someone, I think, not afraid of change. It's almost like I seek that I need something new.
0: Must have been nice. So I guess for at least for a while to have that kind of stability. Absolutely. Yeah. Have that supportive environment as well. must have been really nice.
1: Yes. Actually, in my first stint in Berlin, the first couple of years, I I was looking at at master's degrees in curating or, or courses that were out there. I also did some personal development courses with the Node School for Curatorial Studies in Berlin. I used to teach with them. Did you? Yes. <laughs> really?
0: <laughs> yeah. I taught. Huh. I did some. I did a course on uh, lighting.
1: Okay. Cool. Light, lighting
0: for exhibitions and nice. exhibition design.
1: I did three courses. It's a really great center. Yeah. I think. I guess through Node, I stumbled across the Venice Mm -hmm. School for Curatorial Studies, the three-month summer program. And in my first years, I kind of looked at that and I thought, "Uh, there's no way I would be accepted into that. But I never forgot about that degree. And then I went to the 2017 Venice Biennale and went into this gallery shop actually this art ah, both of these artworks on the table oh really are from from that a plus a gallery i stumbled in there and i found this earplate because my left ear sticks out i never used to <laughs> <laughs> bit of a tangent but pretty important in my my story i found this earplate and i got talking to the owner of the gallery and i was just like oh my i i have to buy this this earplate because this is, you know, part of accepting uh, these personal qualms that you have. And then we got talking and he was asking me, what is an Aussie doing in Venice? And then, of course, that got to me saying that I live in Berlin. And then the Boris collection came up, and he was a huge fan of the Boris collection. And then I asked him, and and what's the concept here? And he said, Oh, uh, this is a a gallery space that I have together with my wife, and we run a curatorial school. And then I just kind of took the words out of his mouth and I was like, You mean the the three month intensive school every summer aligned with the Biennale? (laughs) And he said to me, Yes, how do you know so much about it? And I said, I've been dying to do this for years, and he said, "So why haven't you applied?" And I said, "Oh well, I I thought I'd never get in." Mm-hmm. And he said, "Do me a favor and apply for next year." And I said, "Oh no, no, no! I I if I apply, then I want to wait for the art being for 2019." And he said, "I don't think you need to wait. You should just just go for it." Yeah, and then. I uh, was really going to be late for my uh, flight back to Berlin. Th- th- this was the last day that I had uh, in the Biennale walk. I stayed an extra day longer than my friends to have a day by myself. And I also didn't have uh, any cash, actually, to pay for that artwork. And he, Sandro, very kind of him, he, he just let me take it. And he said, look, just take the artwork. I'll send you an invoice. I trust you. And he's like, <laughs> Okay. So, um, yeah, I arrived back in Berlin and and reflected on the situation and thought, oh, my gosh, if that is not a sign to apply for this dream course that I've always wanted to do, then I don't know what is. So I applied and I was accepted for the 2018 cohort. So then I studied curatorial studies intensively for three months. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, cool! So, oh, I guess so. Then, prior to that, you'd not really dove deep into curating as a, a profession, maybe. exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It was a it was a really great a great course. Very focused, so theoretical an intensive theoretical component. Lectures every day, um, and then the second half of the day was going around to different spaces and mm-hmm. artist studios and palazzos in Venice and yeah. the Biennale. But it was great because that really was an intensive overview into exhibition making.
0: You were saying before when you worked at the Borrower's Collection that having the time with the art, learning more about it, being essentially advocates for the artist when you're in the, what's it called, when you're a Kunstvermittler? I can't remember the English word.
1: Art now. mediator? Yeah, when you're, the me- <laughs> when you're the
0: mediator. Did the curatorial course consolidate
1: a lot of things for you? Absolutely, yes. It It consolidated things for me in terms that, I was so clear on the fact that I wanted to pursue curating Mm -hmm. and organizing productions and not doing the art making myself. Yeah. I had created this project for Sacred Ground Festival curated by my friends, Rai and Frank. I created this social intervention artwork for that in 2017, where it was this huge dream catcher hanging from the trees. And the concept was to build up the message that we're all connected and the the artwork it was a collective growing artwork hanging from the dream catchers were little messages of positivity or mantras. And so the idea was that each person at the festival could come and take one of the messages and keep that with them for the for the weekend and receive this positive influence or a positive message from a complete stranger at the festival. But if you wanted to take one yourself, then you had to write one down and add it to the dream catcher. Oh, okay. So I was interested in ideas that were very much directly interactive for the audience.
0: So since doing the curatorial studies, have you curated any exhibitions in Berlin or in general, like in Sydney or anywhere else?
1: Since the curatorial studies, then i realized I wanted to focus on that. Last year, actually curated a show with ex-girlfriend gallery. They do a call out every year. I think it's can be also quite daunting if you're already working but wanting to do your own projects on the side and needing to find a space and money. Yeah, how is that actually?
0: Or how have you found navigating that as, a, as an independent curator? Because I suppose when I spoke with other people, they've either got the hang of applying for funding and they're in the cycle of how it works mm-hmm. or they belong to an institute. Exactly. So they, they curate for them. Or they're invited by an institute yeah. to put a show together.
1: And that's also the point, I think. I mean, you really have to dedicate your time to funding. I feel like it's very difficult if you're employed because i following the studies at Venice I then started working for Independent Collectors, mm-hmm. a non-profit project.
0: Oh, Parallels to Borrowers. Yes. Okay.
1: So last year I started as a freelancer for Independent Collectors and then they employed me soon after. Mm-hmm. So I was doing four days a week as curator of the platform.
0: So what is Independent Collectors?
1: Uh, Independent Collectors is... A Global Guide to Contemporary Collecting. Mm -hmm. We work with private collections that are both publicly accessible and not publicly accessible. Mm -hmm. So we have an art guide, the BMW Art Guide by Independent Collectors, which lists publicly accessible collections from all over the world. Cool. Um, We have a book and a website version, and then we have our own platform, Independent Collectors, where we present private collections as online exhibitions or do interviews with collectors. That's really about creating public access to privately owned art and creating knowledge and insights surrounding collecting. Getting back to your question, I'm, of course, I'm super lucky to have an employed job and then as a freelancer working at the Boris Collection where I, you know, it's a very balanced constellation Yeah, to be able to work with the physical art and directly with the public, but it doesn't leave much time then to pursue my own independent projects. It's very, very difficult to have the right amount of time to really hone in on being an independent curator. And I think Berlin, I mean, there's so many creatives here, Mm -hmm. very competitive, well, competitive in terms of funding. There's so many people and, and amazing projects. So with ex-girlfriend and the call-out, I guess that was a solution for me. They're a non-profit organization as well and provide a small budget, but at least you get their space mm-hmm. as a playing ground and their support as a space. Sorry, the the studios are a, non, a non-profit and then the, the gallery, I guess, operates between a, a project space and a commercial gallery. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess they're one of the ones that are exploring different models, aren't exactly,
1: they? Exactly. Yeah, I think I was actually the f- I was the first curator that had been selected because you can apply as an artist, can't you? Exactly. Yeah. She'd had just all artists before. Eleanor is, is the the founder, so I was the first curator. That was great, but it was so much work. I was working eight days a week. <laughs> <laughs>
0: When did you apply for it? Because is it usually a year in advance?
1: Yeah, I applied. So the, the exhibition was in 2019. I applied at the end of 2018. And when did the exhibition open? It was in October last year.
0: Okay. So you had like 10 months or eight months to put everything together?
1: Yeah. I mean, when did we find out? It was maybe in the f- after the first quarter or the second quarter. But at the same time as finding out I was selected, I was also finding my feet being employed four days a week at Independent Collectors. So it was a lot, but it was great. Because of this public component that I'm fascinated by and and really interested with curating, I decided that I wanted to make the opening night a full-on event. I feel like in the end I ended up curating two shows and I have a lot of respect for (laughs) For festival producers and yeah, events because I ended up having um yeah, this after party. The opening went on till I don't know, 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had DJs and a live rapper and Ben Dick, the most beautiful saxophonist who also performs in a way that his body while playing the, the instrument is is like a sculpture. He conceived a special acoustic version. Uh, normally, it's a very complex tech writer. I know what a tech writer is now. I had no idea before. A tech writer? Yeah, a tech writer. The um, list of equipment, technical oh, equipment right, that yes. musicians... Oh, Yes, yes. Okay, tech sorry. writer, sorry. Writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was very intensive, but it was a huge success. With my curating as well as working very closely with artists and deepening their practice, It's also really important for me the audience's role and the public involvement. At the Boris Collection, I really further understood how art can be a tool if it's activated. Mm -hmm. For me as a curator, it's, it's not enough to curate an exhibition and to hang works in a space. The exhibition needs to be activated. That can be done with art mediation or all sorts of programming A lot of friends with the opening of my show last year commented that, you know, a lot of friends came that aren't in the art world Mm -hmm. and they said, wow, okay, really had had a great time. So I really kind of wanted to create the evening as something fun where people didn't feel like they had to understand something or they they could simply be there and and enjoy themselves. And that's really how it turned out.
0: As I understand, there was quite a big performative component.
1: Yes, there was a, a performance as part of the exhibition. Yeah. And the objects remained in the space after the opening night, that the performance duo Alessandro Rauchman and Natalia Kouratov, I know I cannot pronounce her last name, sorry, Natalia, she's Russian, (laughs) a performance duo that was connected to the installed exhibition. After the performance, Ben Dick Gieske, who I said plays saxophone, he played live, and he was kind of the linking element from the very artistic performance, to the music party mm-hmm. component of the night. After he finished playing, we had DJ Habibti. That was her debut as a DJ. She was fantastic and that really got the crowd going and the party moved down into the the Hof. The courtyard and then a friend from from Basel, name um he's a, a rapper and he did a great live performance as well and everybody loved that and then we had pan asia girl do the final dj set oh wow
0: was this always your intent or you'd always thought how can I combine contemporary art and performance (laughs) and music and the party atmosphere? Was that inspired by your friends in Sydney that used to do these theme parties? Was that kind of coming full circle or it was just?
1: No, actually it was again, another very natural alignment of, of things happening, putting the energy out there. This woman, Virgin Maria, who lives in Madrid, an artist, she is kind of vibing very now generation Marina Abramovich. She's a very strong female figure. She's a musician and she performs at festivals. I think, is it Sona in in Barcelona? Maybe. But yeah, she's a musician, but a very heavy part of her performances or her playing in front of an audience is a performance. And she is in this meditative posture on her knees or cross legged for the whole set. She's just this incredible kind of goddess woman. And the exhibition was exploring female empowerment under political, religious, and gender power structures. I just always thought, oh, wow, imagine if she played at, at the show, at my exhibition. Mm-hmm. I, by coincidence, said, ah, oh, that's what had happened. There was a fire inside this kitchen that we're sitting in right now last year. Oh, right. Okay. I thought I would lose everything. And after going through something like that, it really puts things into perspective. I didn't get burnt. I mean, it was a black mess and Mm -hmm. it took a uh, renovation and a lot of cleaning. But I realized, wow, I didn't get burnt. I didn't lose everything that I thought I would. And I realized that life is a celebration. And I, I posted this image on Instagram I used to also really be really obsessed with the aesthetics of David Mm LaChapelle, photographer. I found this image on Instagram of a fireman in this diamond G-string bikini from behind. And he had a helmet on and looking at this fire. And I I posted that on my Instagram and I said something along the lines of keep the spirit of life burning. And I, I tagged the artist who made that image, Chromosome Residence. From that, he uh, reached out to me, Rafa. He was in that tour with Virgin Maria that I'd done. And I guess we'd been indirectly keeping an eye on each other or on Instagram or seeing images. And then I got this email from an artist uh, in Berlin, Sophie Mars, who, yeah, would love to work together with me now. But she wrote to me and said, Hey, Georgie, um, my name's Sophie. You don't know me, but I work with Rafa. He's super interested in what you do. I was wondering if you wanted to have a chat and so we ended up meeting I told her about the show that I was producing for ex-girlfriend and turns out that Sophie is an artist herself with an amazing very interesting immersive performance dance body practice turns out she is the best friend of Virgin Maria and I was just said to her what I was like honestly I I had this dream that Maria of, of Maria playing at the show. And she said, "Oh, do you want me to connect you? She's my best friend." And I was like, uh, "Yes." So that happened, and yeah, Maria was really interested to be to be part of the show. And her agent, they they loved the concept. Unfortunately, I just did not have the the budget to afford her, even though they dramatically dropped the price uh, for the project. But I said, "Look, let's." Keep in touch. There will be something that will come up in in the future. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It is. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah.
0: So you are going more in a performative audience interaction participatory yes. yeah. direction. Exactly.
1: Now. Yeah. That that's I guess um, my focus with curating. Yeah. Yeah. Because you last year went
0: to a performance affair, didn't you? In Brussels. I did. Yes. Because that was a festival purely for performance art, isn't it?
1: Yeah. What I think is fantastic, and it's actually great through independent collectors, Liv Vaisberg, who is the founder of the fair, we've met and chatted as well. The fair is fantastic, actually. I really love how performance is given an equal platform because it happens at the same time as Gallery Weekend Brussels. So it's also kind of in the main hall, the building itself gets a lot of attention for uh, surrounding art weekend. So I really feel like it's given an equal level to the gallery weekend and to everything else that's happening. And it's a fantastic program because to enter a fair space, you have that, in quotations, that comfort of the fair context because there's still booths. So even that concept makes the idea of collecting performance art more approachable. Oh, so it was a fair, not a festival. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a festival. It's a fair. For
0: purchasing performance art.
1: Yes. Ah, how
0: does that work? Really (laughs) cool.
1: Ah, there was such a diversity of of concepts. Um, A lot of artists had catalogues, artist books. There was one artist you could pay one euro to have one minute of her time. So the more euros you spend, the more minutes you get. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there was a lot of different concepts and it's a great way to have exposure to artists' focus on performance. I find the more immersive, getting back to my fascination and love for art as a tool, I think the more you can activate art and make it immersive and interactive, doesn't have to be directly interactive. There are many indirect ways that art can be interactive, even a, some kind of installation. And as an audience member, simply walking around that installation, that's participatory. So I'm on a mission as a curator to make art as immersive and as activated as possible, because without the audience, there is no art and vice versa. And I really do believe in the power of art as a tool. I see that at the Boris Collection. People come to the bunker because it is a bunker. Honestly, it's happened many times that people arrive and they did not know that they're about to see a whole building filled with art. And so you have someone standing in front of you that would never normally approach an art gallery, or they've heard that the bunker was um, a sex club in techno club in the 90s. And they're fascinated by that story. And they love techno themselves. So they want to come to this space. And you have this person in front of you that you, it's your role to engage them. And in that 90 minutes that you have with someone, everybody is leaving with at least only one idea that they never would have otherwise thought about. And you can be presenting completely wild ideas. I love Thomas Seno's spiderweb structures in the second exhibition, presenting these futuristic ideas of how to solve diminishing natural resources and overpopulation. So living in the air and making use of airspace, which in an architectural or engineering context would most likely be completely rejected. But you can present these ideas in context of an art setting and people. Are really more open to thinking about these ideas and so that's how i really believe in the power of art as a tool and which therefore needs activation
0: i hope you enjoyed hearing about georgie's journey from the australian outback to the german capital and her ultimate career in the art world i've included links to the topics we spoke about in the show notes below as well as social media channels where you can find out about georgie's upcoming projects If you like listening to this and don't want to miss out on upcoming episodes, simply subscribe to Subtext and Discourse, which is available on all major podcast streaming platforms. If you'd like to know more about this or previous episodes, wish to share your feedback or just say hello, you can reach me on social media via the links in the podcast description. Thanks again for tuning in. New episodes online every second Monday. Until next time, take care and stay healthy. My name's Michael Dooney. And you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.